This morning in our services, we are, uh, we're focusing on back to school. It's back to school Sunday for us. And we want to recognize and pray for all of those who are going to go back to school in the fall and, and uh, uh, the educators who are going to be going back to school as well. So whether it's high school or elementary school or college graduate school or you're an educator, we want to pray for you in a little while. We know that school helps to shape and to form our thoughts, our lives, and our opinions as we get older. And so I want to speak this morning in order to encourage you in that direction. Uh, how many of you present in this service are going back to school this fall, in, in whether it's you're going to school uh, to learn or you're an educator? Would you raise your hand? All right, we got a few. We've had, we've had uh, multiple in our previous services as well and prayed over them. And uh, I know that most of us aren't going back to school. You're probably not going back to class this year uh, for the majority of us. And yet I think that what we talk about today from God's word is going to be applicable in your life, whether it might be at your job or it's in your home or in your family. And so I'd encourage you to pay attention as well, even though the sort of the nature of, of the message this morning is aimed toward those who are going back into the classroom. In order to talk about going back to school, I want to consider the story of four young men in the Bible who were sent back to school in a very literal sense. It's the story of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and their story is recorded in the book of Daniel. One of the fascinating facts about this book is that the first part records the stories and adventures of these four young men, how God delivered them from a multitude of different circumstances. But the second part records something a little bit more strange. It records the visions and dreams that Daniel had about some kings and kingdoms. He had these visions about the kingdoms that were going to rise up, including the Babylonians who would be overthrown by the Persians, who would be overthrown eventually by the Greeks, who would be uh, kind of taken over eventually by the Romans. And he had some visions about these these kingdoms that were going to rise and fall, and the visions focus in on one particular era and in one particular person. It was this guy who rose to power in the year of 175 BC. He was the ruler of the Seleucid Empire. Uh, this is one of the four empires that was broken up after Alexander died. And so I've got a map to show you just to give you a little world context. I know we're going back to school a day early here, but it's okay. You'll survive. All right. So Alexander the Great, how many know who he was? Remember Alexander the Great? He was the Hellenistic or the Greek empire builder. He built a vast empire after his father had died, but then he suddenly dropped dead himself, and that left turmoil in, it, in, in his wake. And so his kingdom was divided up between four generals, and one of those generals took over an area called the Seleucid Empire. It's kind of a purplish area there. And you'll notice that in the year 175, and th this map is 188, but it's close, you'll notice that little strip that goes down to the south that's between Arabia and Egypt. And that's where Israel was. That's where Judah was. And so this is the king, the emperor, who ruled over the people of God at that time. And his name was Antiochus IV. I got a little picture of him on a coin that he minted, if you want to show that. This is that guy. And one of the interesting things about Antiochus was he was the first Seleucid emperor who on this coin stamped that he was the son of a god. He thought he was the son of the gods, and so he minted that, stamped it on the coins. We'll see this as kind of a theme. People with a lot of power tend to, 
think that everybody ought to worship them. And so he did that, and he stamped that, sent it out to everybody. And the Jews in Judea were subject to him during his reign. He tried really hard to make everybody kind of think the same and act the same. He wanted everybody to be very Greek in nature, so he wanted them to replace their own cultures with Greek culture, Greek art, Greek philosophy, Greek worship, Greek gods. He wanted them all to kind of be the same. And there's a book uh, uh, that records some of the history of the Jews called One Maccabees, and it describes this period. And this is what the author of 1 Maccabees says about Antiochus and about this period of Jewish history. He says, moreover, King Antiochus wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people. That sounds nice, doesn't it? Unity. And everyone should leave his laws so all the heathen agreed according to the commandment of the king. Yes, many also of the Israelites or the Jews consented to his religion and sacrificed to his idols and profaned the Sabbath. For the king had sent letters by messengers to Jerusalem and the cities of Judah that they should follow the strange laws of the land and forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings in the temple and that they should profane the Sabbaths and festival days and pollute the sanctuary and holy people, set up altars and groves and chapels and idols and sacrifice swine's flesh, which was abhorrent to the Jews, and unclean beasts, that they should also leave their children uncircumcised and make their souls abominable with all the manner of uncleanness and profanation to the end they might forget the law and change all the ordinances. He wanted them to forget who they were and become a different kind of people that he could control. And whosoever would not do according to the commandment of the king, he said he should die. In the selfsame manner, wrote he to his whole kingdom and appointed overseers over all the people, commanding the cities of Judah to sacrifice city by city. Then many of the people were gathered unto them to wit or to rat out every one that forsook the law. And so they committed evils in the land and drove the Israelites into secret places and even wheresoever they could flee for succor or for safety. So Antiochus is this really wicked king. He's wicked toward the Jews. In fact, he went so far as to enter the temple in Jerusalem, something no Gentile was supposed to do. He renamed their temple after the Greek god, Zeus Olympus, and then he sacrificed a pig on the altar, which was not only deeply offensive, but was sinful in the eyes of the Jews. And because of his threats and his persecution and the potential personal benefits of conforming, the temptation to abandon devotion to God was really strong among the Jews at this time. And many of them did just that. They abandoned worship of God. In fact, this was the period when the basis was forming for the group that would come to be known as the Sadducees, men who coveted power and often gained it by collaborating with oppressive and evil foreign governments. This is the same group who participated in condemning Jesus to death. And it was a period in the history of the Jews when the temptation to conform and give up faith and hope in God was strong. What does that have to do with Daniel, who lived hundreds of years before Antiochus? What does it have to do with us, who lived thousands of years after Antiochus? Daniel's own story and his visions were given and preserved by God for those who would go through times of great temptation. Temptation to go along with the flow when it feels almost inevitable that evil will win. When it feels like the morality and ideals of the age are just 
unstoppable. They're going to happen. When the power of government is used to bring people into conformity, wants to re-educate people so that they forget about their commitment and dependence on God, times when standing firm doesn't seem like an option because the alternative will be rejection or death, times when the way of the world seems crushing and those who are devoted to God may be tempted to think, what can one insignificant person do against this? And one of the big emphases of the book of Daniel, maybe the main theme of the book, is that there is a king who reigns above every other king, a hidden king, so to speak, a king that isn't obvious to the eyes, that his kingdom isn't able to be, to be put on a map of geography of the world. There's a kingdom being built behind the scenes, and it's not always obvious and the New Testament continues this theme, this theme, when Jesus says things like, my kingdom is not of this world. Or when Paul writes, we walk by faith and not by sight. Or we don't wrestle against, against uh, flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities in heavenly places. And Daniel himself goes so far as to say that this kingdom, this unseen kingdom and this hidden king will include people from all over the world. Daniel 7, 13 to 14 says this, I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days, to God, and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now this was a prophecy about Jesus. In fact, when Jesus was on earth, he liked to refer to himself and often did as the Son of Man. And this was a way that he was claiming for those who were knowledgeable and who understood, he was claiming, I'm the one Daniel was talking about. When they asked him if he was the Son of God, Jesus told the men who were in charge of Israel, the Sadducees, he told them, you've said so, but I tell you, that from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Does that sound familiar? It should, because we just read it from Daniel chapter 7. So if you were paying attention two minutes ago, it should sound familiar at this point. This is Jesus saying, Daniel was writing about me. Now, I know that this idea that there's a hidden king and a hidden kingdom, it doesn't sound all that fantastic to us. We were born in this era. We grew up understanding there are three great world religions, and Christianity is one of them. And we know people worship Jesus all over the world. But I want you to pause and to think about this from the point of view, first of Daniel it would not have all, at all have been obvious to Daniel or anyone who listened to his prophecies that there would be people all over the world worshiping the God of the Jews. In fact, it would have seemed very, very unlikely. He would have seemed like a crazy man. Think about the situation they were in. Their kingdom had been destroyed. The temple had been burned to the ground and overthrown. When it was rebuilt, it was a shadow of what it once was. There was another king reigning over them. They were scattered. God's people were scattered all over the Babylonian empire. The idea that anyone from any other nation was going to worship their God must have seemed laughable. Think about it from Jesus' perspective. Here he is standing in front of the Sanhedrin, the men who would condemn him to die, and they ask him if he's the son of God, and he says, actually, I'm the one Daniel spoke about. I'm the son of man, and you're gonna see me seated at the right hand of God and coming in power. 
And that probably seemed pretty laughable to them. They were the ones in power. The idea that people from all over the world would worship Jesus, that must have seemed like a silly, silly thing to them. Not at all obvious. We might look and think, oh yeah, that's really obvious. It was not obvious. It was the opposite of obvious at the time. And yet think about this. Just today, in just this little old church in little old Agawam, Massachusetts, we've had Western Europeans, Moldovans, Ukrainians, Russians, Kenyans, Puerto Ricans. We have a Uruguayan on staff. We have people from all over the world who have gathered to worship the God of the Jews through his son and king, Jesus Christ. And today, already all over the world, and later on in other time zones, there will be churches all over the world who will worship a hidden king who has a hidden kingdom of people all over the world. That was not obvious to Daniel. It was not obvious at the time of Jesus. And yet God has done it. And this is the big theme of the book of Daniel. There's a hidden king and there's a hidden kingdom. And I would submit to you that that theme is to encourage us today. Daniel wrote this down and others wrote the visions of Daniel down to encourage you who go through times of persecution where you are tempted to think everything feels like it's going the same direction and I have to walk against the flow all the time to encourage you to know that even when there are tyrants who would push us all to conformity in one direction, there is another king who reigns above them. There is a kingdom that remains hidden and he is the true king. And Daniel and his prophecy and the fulfillment of his prophecy, even as you and I are a part of that fulfillment, encourage our hearts to understand that God is faithful and that he has a plan and that plan includes you. God has a plan and it includes you if your faith is in his son Jesus. And I want you to hear that clearly as you go back to school or as you're continuing in your job this week on Monday morning because sometimes we'll put it like this, God has a plan for your life and I think that's a, a fine way to put it. Although maybe once in a while it puts the emphasis a little too much on us and we begin to think that this is all about me. God is like up there making a plan uh, just about me. When in reality, God has a plan and, and you fit in it, you're included, but you're not the center of the plan. That spot was taken, I'm sorry, but it's been taken by a guy named Jesus and so you can't usurp his place and so you're gonna have to be happy not being the very center of God's plan and yet he includes you in his plan. God has a plan and you're included in it and I want you to be able to walk in confidence in that as you go back to school. Now we don't have time to read the whole book of Daniel this morning. But I want to challenge you, if you're going back to school this, this fall, that you would read the book of Daniel in preparation for going back to school. You might think, well, I won't understand everything. There are some things in Daniel difficult to understand. That's okay. There are some things you will understand, important things. I want to point three of those things out to you this morning. Lessons that we learn from the book of Daniel about God's plan and how we can be included in it. And the first one is this, don't get swallowed. Don't get swallowed. What I mean is that school is one of those places where you feel like most people are headed in the same direction, and it's often the wrong direction. And because everyone is going in that direction, even sometimes people who are in authority, maybe even sometimes teachers and administrators, maybe even the curriculum you're learning, sometimes you'll be tempted to think that resisting is useless. Everybody's going this way. And you may as well just go with the flow. 
If you fit in, it will certainly be easier. I want you to listen to the circumstances that Daniel and his friends found themselves in. In Daniel chapter 1, we read this. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim and of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning and are gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. Azariah was called Abednego. I want you to think about the situation that Daniel and his friends were in. The king, their king, had been defeated. Their temple had been plundered and its objects taken and placed in the temple of another god. They were separated from their families. They were to be re-educated and they were given new names. Their old names reflected the God of Israel. Their new names were all reflective of Babylonian gods. It really had to be tempting to think that if God didn't help them when they were at home in Judah. Why should they remain faithful in Babylon? In fact, think about this. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were evidently not the only Jews who were selected to be a part of this re-education program. And probably some of those other young men went with the flow. And yet here, Daniel, Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah, the first thing we read about them doing It says they refused to defile themselves with the king's food, if you keep reading in Daniel 1. Now you might think, well, what's that all about? Look, the point is this. Their God, God of Israel, had set up certain laws, things they weren't supposed to eat, and there was probably a concern on their part that the things the king was serving them had been offered to other gods first, offered to other idols, and they said, no, we will not defile ourselves with the king's food. Food. And while God did not save his unjust and sinful people from being defeated by a foreign nation, God did work to save Daniel and his friends who were faithful over and over again. If you read Daniel, you read about the fiery furnace and how it was saved from the mouth of lions and many other attempts to destroy them. You know, it's nice on a Sunday morning when we can be together in a room like this, we can worship God in church, but when you go back to school, It likely feels like everybody is going a direction that doesn't really fit what you're learning from God's word. Maybe what you're learning at home or what you've learned in church. What's the use of resisting hookup culture or sending that inappropriate snap or using that language or standing up for God's word and what it says is right or refusing to affirm what everybody else is affirming or of not participating in the bullying or the gossiping or the slander or not getting caught up in the latest immodest fashion trends or social media trends. Why bother when everybody else, maybe even other students who take the title Christian, 
are doing these things? Why hold to what the Bible says when your teacher says something different? Why not just accept that this is the way the world is? Here's why. This is what the book of Daniel says. It says it's not obvious. You can't see it with your eyes. But the reason you shouldn't accept it is because it's a lie. That's not really the way the world is. The way the world really is is that there is another king who reigns over every other king. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he has a kingdom that has spread all over the world throughout time, and that king is the one who died for you so you could be forgiven and have a new life in him, and his kingdom is coming, and when it does, we'll all stand before him, and we'll give an account of our lives. And if we cared more about what some rando at school thought of us than what God Almighty thought of us, then we're gonna find ourselves on the wrong side of his kingdom We'll find out that we actually were not in his kingdom and we will be judged and cast out. Student, don't get swallowed. I know the pressure is great. The pressure feels unstoppable. But remember there is another king whose kingdom is not of this world. And he has a plan that's been going on for a lot longer than the latest social media trends or fashion trends at your school. It's been taking place longer than school culture. He formulated it before you were ever created. He has a plan. It is the plan, and you're included in it if your faith is in Jesus. So stay faithful to the true king, and he will save you. And that leads to the second lesson I want to share from Daniel and his friends. Don't bow down no matter what. Like Antiochus that we talked about earlier who thought he was a son of the gods, people who are in power often get really big heads and they start to think that people should devote themselves to them, that they ought to offer affection and worship to them. And Nebuchadnezzar apparently thought something like this. He decided he was so worth it that he was going to build a great big gold statue, likely in his own image, but it was a statue of a god, he said, and he was going to require everybody to bow down to it. This is his way of solidifying the loyalty of his other leaders in the nation. So he's going to require them all to bow down. And he was going to make it easy for them. He's going to make it comfortable. He offered worship music. Literally, he offered worship music. He offered nice music. It wasn't just like an alarm that sounded. It says that there were pipes and there were, there were harps and there were, uh, there were trumpets and there were lyres. And, and they, were, they were offering this worship music. And when everybody heard the worship music, everybody was supposed to bow down. And they were supposed to worship the golden image that the king had set up. But there were these three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to bow down. Now, when we read the story today, it all sounds a bit overblown and dramatic. I mean, a huge gold statue and special music, that's weird. But maybe it's not as different from today as we like to think. Because really, like I said, this is probably an attempt by the king to get everyone on the same page and encourage their loyalty to him. And so he made it comfortable for them with this worship music. And in fact, there are a lot of things that the world just wants you to accept today, to adhere to, to devote yourself to, We're all about tolerance as long as you affirm public sensuality and the LGBTQ agenda and abortion and a number of other ideas that everyone is supposed to bow down to. And if you don't, you won't be thrown into a fiery furnace, but you might get canceled. You may be rejected by friends or criticized by teachers or opposed by a superintendent or a school board. But don't worry, we'll make it easy for you with art as well. You won't even notice that you're worshiping, that your affection is being devoted to something else. We put it in our music too to make it easier to swallow. We'll put it all over our televisions and in the advertisements and in social media so that it all seems 
just really refined and acceptable and ordinary and the way that you ought to live your life. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not so easily wowed. It didn't matter to them what kind of beautiful music was playing, nor how great the consequences were. They were not going to bow down. And so they were dragged in front of the king who gave them one more chance and said, if you do not bow when the worship music plays, you will be thrown into the fiery furnace. And their response seems respectful in tone, but it gives me the chills every time I read it. It says in Daniel 3, 17 to 18, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. There's nothing that makes tyrants whether the kind that sit on thrones or the kind that sit behind school desks or the kind that type away on Twitter or whatever it's called now, there's nothing that makes tyrants more angry than young men and young women who are so certain of the faithfulness of their God that they will stand without hatred and say, God will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we are not worshiping anything other than him. And students, as you go back to school, there will be music that plays when you enter the halls not like mood music. I'm not talking about whatever elevator music they play or don't play. I'm talking about metaphorical music that will play as you enter the halls and it will want you to bow down, make it easy for you to slide into immorality, into what the others are doing, into perverse sexuality or greed or pride or anger. And they'll try to make it go over easy with music and social media and the appearance of wisdom and acceptance into a group that you want to be a part of or painting it every color of the rainbow. Don't bow down no matter what. God has a plan and you're a part of that plan. Don't deny him. Don't deny what he wants to do in your life even while you're in high school or elementary school or college. Don't give it all away because temptation and sin were made to slide down easy as if you're given a little bit of sugar with that poison. Don't bow to what everyone else is bowing to. Become the man or woman that God has made you to be in Christ Jesus and stand for him, even when no one else is willing to stand. Don't get swallowed. Don't bow down. Finally, make Jesus the main character. If you're going to be successful in not getting swallowed and not bowing down when there's such opposition, you're going to have to keep your eyes on Jesus, and it's going to take constant awareness. It's true that God has a plan for your life, but don't focus so much on you. Focus on Jesus, and he'll lead you into God's plan for your life. The last story I want to bring up is the one that the book is famous for, the one that gets its title from the book, Daniel and the Lion's Den. This story leads to the Lion's Den, and I can't tell the whole story, uh, but the summary of it is this. There were some men who were jealous of Daniel and the influence he had in the kingdom. They knew he prayed three times a day. So they convinced the king to pass a law that for a certain period, no one could pray to anyone except the king. This was a different king. What's with these kings, by the way, who all think that they deserve worship and prayer? I'm just saying they haven't gone away. They're still here. And Daniel heard of this law, and guess what he did? He opened the window toward Jerusalem, got down on his knees three times that day, and prayed to God, just like he did every other day. And you know the story. They called him out on it. He was thrown in the lion's den. God protected him from the lions, and then the king killed all those guys who tried to get Daniel killed. 
If you're going to stand firm and participate in God's plan while you're in high school or college, you're going to resist the forces that are all going to be going in the opposite direction. You're going to need to make sure that you keep your eyes on Jesus. Maybe literally praying three times a day would be a good thing. I mean, what if you decided before you go back to school, and I would even challenge you to do this, you don't have to pray for like an hour every time, but what if for a few moments before you go back to school each morning, you say, God, I need your help to be strong today before I go. There are a lot of things that are moving in a direction I know you don't want me to go when I enter the halls, and I need your strength of the Holy Spirit to care more about what you think than what the other people at my school think. And then halfway through the day, Maybe you get a break for lunch and you sit down and you say, God, thank you for this food and thank you that you're right here with me even in the lion's den or the fiery furnace. And then what if after you get home from school you pray, God, thank you that you helped me today. I pray that you'd reveal in me any way that I compromise and you'd help me to live for you and be strong for you. What if you made it literally three times a day like Daniel and it kept your eyes on Jesus. What difference might that make in your ability to stand firm in the midst of opposition? I challenge you, make Jesus the main character. Remember him throughout the day by praying before, in the middle, and after school. Because God has a plan, he has a kingdom, and if you have faith in Christ, you're part of that plan. Don't get swallowed, don't bow down, make Jesus the main character, and you're gonna remain faithful to God. He will help you. We're going to pray in just a moment for the students and teachers who are part of our congregation. But before we do, I want to make this point. Maybe you're here, you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus. We talked about multiple kings today. In fact, we mentioned at least three kings who in one way or another made the claim that they were God or a son of the gods. We talked about Nebuchadnezzar, then there was Cyrus who required everybody to pray to him, or Darius who required everybody to pray to him, and then there was Antiochus IV who printed on his coins, son of the gods. These guys seemed to think that they were such a big deal that people owed them their affection, attention, and loyalty, that they ought to serve them like they were worshiping a god. There's another king we talked about who made a very similar claim. But he made it in a very different circumstance, in a very different way. He didn't set up a gold statue and say, when the worship music starts to play, everybody's got to bow down to the gold statue. He didn't print it on any coins. Instead, he stood in front of a group of men who had power over his life and death, or so they thought, and who were about to kill him. And he said to them, I am the Son of God, and you're going to see me come in power. And it wasn't at all obvious to anybody at the time that that would ever be fulfilled, until a few days later, of course. But he stood and he made that claim. And then they killed him for it. And three days later, God raised him from the dead. I want you to notice something very, very important about the distinction between these claims. How many of you worship Nebuchadnezzar today? How many people around the world do you think still pray to Darius? How many people do you think still spend Antiochus' money that says, son of the gods? Nobody, as far as I know, nobody does that. Yet they all made a claim to be divine. But there was one man who claimed to be divine and somehow he pulled it off because God raised him from the dead and now this man, who is the son of God, is worshiped by people all over the world. But the Bible says that his kingdom won't remain hidden forever. 
There will come a day when he comes back personally, physically to earth. He will reign as king. And on that day, it will be very obvious whether you were part of his kingdom or you were not a part of his kingdom. And if you reject him now, if you say, I don't want anything to do with God's kingdom right now, I don't want anything to do with what God is doing, I'm gonna do my own thing, I'm gonna be my own king, I'm gonna worship other things, my attention, affection, loyalty, and devotion is gonna be offered to other people and in other places, then when he returns, it's too late. You don't get to offer him worship and devotion then. But he gives you the opportunity now And maybe to this point in your life you've rejected him and you think, well, society is going the way and I'm just going with the flow and and you're just satisfied with where you are. Or maybe you've come to church because you feel some sense of guilt or you're you're just checking it off the box or you were dragged here by your girlfriend or your wife or whatever and you've come with that sense of guilt. I just want to warn you today, there is a king and you may not see his kingdom with your eyes, but there's coming a day when you'll give an answer to him for why you did not worship the king of kings and lord of lords and you instead decided to devote your life to other lesser things when he is your creator and he died to save you and God raised him from the dead to convince you that he can give you new life and you'll have to answer him why did you not believe and so I would just plead with you today because he gives you opportunity to love and serve and to know him to know his grace and your his mercy in your life he gives you that opportunity today but there's a day when it will be too late don't wait for that day confess and believe in him today He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There's no other name that you can be saved with. And Paul says this in Romans. He says, if you'll confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That is, you'll say, I believe Jesus is the King. He's the King God sent. He's over every ruler. He deserves my devotion. He deserves my service. He deserves my affection. He deserves my attention. He's Lord. That's what it means to say Jesus is Lord. And you'll believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead because it would make very little sense to call him Lord if he died, but God didn't raise him from the dead. So if you'll believe those things, that God raised Jesus and that he is Lord, the Bible says you'll be saved. You'll be brought into his kingdom, not because you did good works, but because Jesus died for you to save you you from your sin and to bring you into God's kingdom. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. And what we're about to do doesn't save you. Raising a hand, praying a prayer, those things don't save you. Jesus saves you when you come to him and you confess in sincerity that he's Lord and you believe that God raised him. I want to give you the opportunity to do that today. I'm going to do it in this way just so that I can see and respond and pray with you. If that's you, you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, You don't know that you're a part of his kingdom. You've never confessed that he's Lord, and you'd like to do that today. Maybe you've run from him. Maybe you have turned away from him. You've offered your affection, your devotion, and your loyalty to other things. But today, you've heard the message, and you'd say, I need to be right with God. I need to be right with Jesus. Today is an opportunity for you to do that. If you'll call on the Lord, you'll be saved. And so I want to give you that chance. That's you. You don't have a relationship with God through Jesus, but you want to begin that relationship by faith today. Would you just lift up your hand so that I can see and pray with you? Is there anybody like that? You don't have that relationship with God through Jesus. You've never committed your life to him, given your devotion to him, put your faith in Jesus, and you want to today. Is there anybody like that? Anybody at all? I'm going to wait for just a moment.
not seeing any hands, I want to move on to pray for our students in administration and those who are going to be going back to school this fall, that God would give them strength and courage. And so we have a few students that are coming in to be representative. But also, if, um, if you are a student and you're going back to class this fall and you would like us to pray for you, I'm going to ask if you would just come forward and the congregation is going to take a moment and pray for you. So if that's you, you're a student, no matter what age or grade, and you're going back to school, whether it's preschool, all the way up to college, would you go ahead and come down and we will pray for you? Make your way forward. and We want to pray for you. And as they come, there are also, I know that we have a number of administrators and uh, educators who are present as well. And so if you are a teacher or a, in school administration and, and you'd like to receive prayer for this upcoming school year, would you come as well? We want to pray for you. Any teachers present? administrators make your way forward we want to pray over you congregation I want to ask if you would just stand with me and uh, if you'd even just extend a hand we want to pray for these students we're going to start with those who are youngest and going into school we'll pray for elementary students they're mostly in classes and things right now though we do have a few and then we'll pray for those who are uh, in higher grades and we'll pray for our educators last but would you just reach out a hand and let's pray over these students Heavenly Father in Jesus name we pray over the students who are going back to school this fall we thank you for those who are young and they're getting started in their education I pray that right off the bat Lord you would fill them with an awareness of your presence and that you are king over all I pray that even while they're young they'd be bold for you I pray God that you give them a spirit like Daniel that was that he determined to not defile himself to not just go with what everybody else was doing but to go with what you say is right and I pray that you'd help them with just a humble heart even when they're young even preschool and kindergarten to begin to understand the things that you want for their lives and to be able to stand up for what's right even in those places I pray for those who are in elementary school and friendships are forming give them your grace to demonstrate your love to their friends and Lord help them to stand firm as Maybe their friends are tugging at them in the wrong direction. I pray that they would resist temptation. I pray that their character would be formed in the character of Christ to love and honor and represent you no matter where they are and no matter how high the pressure gets. I pray for those who are in high school. Lord, we know that often they're going to face pressures that are very, very high, whether it's academically or they're going to face the pressure of their peers or even of the curriculum and the things that they're learning. God, would you give them just a gracious spirit, but a spirit also that in grace and in humility knows how to stand firm and not back down from what you have taught them is right and from what your word says. I pray that they would live lives of holiness before you and be pleasing to you. I pray that their lives would shine and stand out as examples among their peers. And I pray, God, that you would help them to remain firm. Help them, Lord, not to give in to the sweet sound of the music of worldliness or the sweet sound of the music of, of sensuality or, or of fear or of pride or of anger, but Lord, help them to be patient in listening for your voice and following your lead. I pray for those who are in college or graduate school, and God, they're in years where they're thinking critically about, about ideas and, and the things that, that they want to do with their lives and how to use their skills to honor you. I pray, God, that you'd help them as they are presented all kinds of different ideas to be able to evaluate them according to your word, give them a renewed mind to do their best in their studies, and also, Lord, to be able to represent you and even make changes 
changes in the fields that they will enter for people to know and recognize Jesus in those fields. We thank you, God, and pray that you'd raise them up. Give them even influence like you gave to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that they might be influential in this world and point people to the one true king. We also lift up educators, Lord, teachers, and, and administration, and we ask God that you'd minister in their lives. As they are going back to school, we pray that you'd gift them with wisdom to be able to share with their students, help them to be able to share the love of Jesus, even in their own demeanor and their lives, the influence they have on their students. Let it, let it impact their students for eternity. Father, I ask that as they face difficulties, perhaps, and they're struggling with how to get through to students, or maybe they're struggling with how to be firm in the midst of a, a controversy, or how to address a social issue, or something that the administration wants that, that they don't want to comply with, that they don't believe is right. God, give wisdom. Give hearts of understanding. And at the end of the day, I pray that there just be such a solidness in them that says, with respect and with humility, our God is able to deliver. And he will deliver us out of your hand. But if not, we're not going to worship these things. Our affection and devotion will not be turned aside. Lord, we thank you for all of these. Make it a great year for them. Give them your grace. Fill them with your spirit. Let them know your love and may they fulfill your plan. In Jesus' name we pray and we believe. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being with us this morning. We're, we're grateful that you allowed us the privilege to pray with you. We hope that you have a great week. If you're going back to school this week, may God bless you as you go back. We will see you all again on Wednesday when we come together for prayer and worship one more time. Until then, go in God's grace and in his peace.